Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. As you listen out in the church and out in the world, you will hear often many voices saying that we now live in a post-Christian society. Some people say that with alarm. Other people say it with relief. I have to admit that I'm always a bit perplexed by the statement because as I look back on history, both recently and more distantly, I struggle to find a time when from top to bottom, at least, as a society, we lived in a way that Jesus would recognize as Christian. Now, we've certainly lived in societies where the church was more culturally influential, where participating in the outward life of the church was more generally expected. And we've lived in times when we've taken our cultural interpretations of morality and labeled them Christians and held them up as God's standard of respectability. We are certainly post whatever that was. That is no longer the case. But I'm not all that alarmed about it. Because I know that the church was never meant to be an institution with worldly power. What are we to do with worldly power when we have Christ? And the gospel is not something that be, can be communicated by compulsion. Especially not the compulsion of social conformity. That just leaves it terribly distorted. And as far as labeling our culture morality Christian, I'm sure that sometimes communicated an outward appearance of living in a Christ-like way, but so often it missed the heart of what Christ really taught. And more often than that, was used as an instrument to protect the comfort of the powerful and to keep those who were on the margins on the margins. Now, a society like that, even if we remember it as being Christian, hardly bears little resemblance to the radical lifestyle that the Romans were afraid would turn their world upside down, and which is still in its way in the business of turning the world upside down and will in the end. But that society may have been more comfortable for the church in some ways. There may have been more people in the pews. There may have been more dollars in the plate. And for those who benefited from the system, it freed them from the fear that the world would ever look other than they wanted it to look. Because, however mistakenly, they were told that God wanted it to look that way too. That world is passing away. And it may surprise you to hear, because preaching doom and gloom has sort of become the church's bread and butter, but I'm actually rather optimistic about the church's present and its future. Because that was a safe society for some people, but it was not really one in which the church could do its work. The church's work is to transform people and to transform the world. And that's not really done from a position of power and privilege. I am optimistic about this change, even while I know that, like all change, it will involve loss and pain and grief. For many of us, 
if not all of us. And that is something that must be handled with care and pastoral sensitivity. But I also know that this change brings new life from Christ that is better than whatever the church had before. Because that is how the church of Christ works. Because that is how Christ works. The old passes away. Over time, things die, comforts and privileges among them. But everything that dies rises again, remade, new, truer, better, more faithful to the gospel, more like Christ, our dying and rising Lord. Now we must handle with gentleness as we mourn that loss. But even as we do that, we must not acquiesce to fearing that loss. Because mourning is natural. And it's good insofar as Jesus promises us that it always leads to being comforted. But fear like that only comes from the evil one. And if that seems an extreme statement, I point you only to our gospel lesson today. You will remember, right, Sophia, that last week Jesus has just finished proclaiming Peter the rock on which he will build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then, when in the very next breath, Jesus begins to explain that building the church, and more than that, building his kingdom, will be founded upon his death and resurrection, well, Peter's reaction then is not faith, but fear. Now, it's fear disguised as wisdom and pragmatism and authority. He takes Jesus aside, after all. But, like so much of the fear we hear from the church today, it's fear nonetheless, no matter how we dress it up. And unlike Peter's faith, fear is not something that's been revealed to him by the Father through the Spirit. But fear comes from the deceiver, from the liar, from the accuser, which is why Jesus addresses Peter by his name. A fearful Peter is not a rock upon which the church can be built, but is rather a stumbling block, getting in the way and leading people astray. Fear, you see, makes us shrink from death. And that deprives us of resurrection. Fear convinces us to abandon our crosses, which in turn pushes us out of the path of Christ. Fear tricks us into confusing human things for divine things and divine things for human things, even if we thereby gain the whole world. As long as we grasp on to the world, we lose our life in Christ. As the church and as its members, we are called to lay down our life, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Christ. Now, a comfortable church, or a church that really wants to be comfortable, will tell us that taking up our cross means facing the trials of asserting our dominance in the world, and maybe sometimes having weak moments if we deserve it. But it's much the opposite that I think is true. 
Taking up our cross and following Christ means surrendering any claim on or aspiration to power and privilege in this world. It means knowing only a worldly weakness that is tantamount to death, and yet at the same time embracing and bearing as our truest reality a divine power which is indeed eternal life. It seems to me that the church finds itself at such a moment of death and resurrection. Which is why to those who mourn the death we must say, Blessed are you. Come and be comforted by the resurrection. But from the same pastoral impulse we must say to that fear which holds so many of us in its grips, so that we can do nothing else but dig in our heels and say, God forbid it, may it never happen. We must say, get thee behind us, Satan. Lest that fear prevent us, and especially those that it has so strongly in its grasp, from enjoying one moment of the new life that Christ has promised us. And lest we think that that new life of cross-taking and following, of denying and dying to ourselves, is a dreary and woeful one. We need only look to St. Paul and his description of that life or what it should be in our epistle reading today. It isn't a life of power and privilege or ease, but it is a life of genuine love and honor and affection, one of ardent, spirit-filled service, one of devotion to the common good, it is a life of joy and peace and perseverance and prayer, of mutual aid and hospitality. And yes, it is still a life that has persecution and weeping and lowliness and even evil. But even they are met with blessing and rejoicing and humility and honesty and faith and forgiveness. And that is a society that I would want to live in no matter what it was post. Indeed, I think it's the society that, as the church, we are called to live in. Because that is partly what it means to take up our cross and follow Christ in the building of his kingdom. And as long as we are building his kingdom, we need not fear the loss of the whole world. Because we know that we and the whole world with us will find in that kingdom and nowhere else nothing less but new and true and abundant and eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.